Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is over Malachi chapter 2, entitled Marriage Mess, part 2. Good morning. We're in the book of Malachi, actually using it as a jumping off place. But if you'd like to turn there, I would like for you to. If you don't know where Malachi is, if you know where Matthew is, and turn left one book, you're in Malachi. A very short, very small book. The only reason why we call them minor prophets is because compared to what we call major prophets, they wrote a lot less. It's not that they're what they wrote is in any way minor or inconsequential. They just didn't write 60 chapters like Jeremiah or whatever. You only have four chapters here in the book of Malachi. Not to say at all that the stuff that he says isn't, isn't significant. In fact, you're going to see that it definitely is. Malachi chapter 2. And um, let's take a look at verse 11 and verse 16. And like I said we sort of use this as a jumping off place to discuss the topic of marriage and divorce, or start this discussion, I guess we could say, because we're going to go several Sundays on this. You can't just deal with it at one time. Uh, but God's dealing with the circumstances. People have not changed. Uh, marriage problems, divorce, uh, God's desire regarding marriage, and God's heart toward, or toward divorce has not changed. Circumstances have changed, people have not. So notice, this is more than 2,000 years ago. And they were having a society that was having marital breakups and divorces and uh, people running around on each other and all that. And that sounds like a modern thing. Well, it's, it's as old as sin, and that's pretty old. So take a look back at uh, chapter 2, verse 11. First of all, Judah dealt treacherously. How? An abomination, it says, has been committed in Israel and in, in Jerusalem. For we think abomination is some of the most heinous things, and it is. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So they're going out and making these marriages, marrying people they shouldn't be marrying. In addition to that, in order to get to that marriage, you have to dissolve another marriage, verse 16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord. In other words, he cloaks it. He, he's acting wrong, but he's cloaking it as if it's something good. It's the best thing for me. It's the best thing for her. God's saying, no, it's not. So take heed to your spirit. That you do not deal treacherously, God says, with regards to uh, the dis dissolution of marriage and, and, and divorce. And like I said, we use this as a jumping off place to make our way into the far back Old Testament where we started eight years ago in our study, our, our progression through the Old Testament that we called the highlight reel. And if you will turn with me back there to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, but suffice it to say, effectively, God is very concerned about marriages about relationships, but marriage in particular. Here, look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all. How many is all? It is it. It's the pinnacle. We should honor it. We shouldn't disparage it in any way. Uh, the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Don't make him do what he says he will do. Don't make him. Because he will. They're not an exception to this. So we were in Malachi, now we're in the book of Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be in the last two verses there here in just a bit. A bit. Last time we were together, though, we started out by getting a little bit of a feedback from, um, from some children. And I wanted to give us more chance for children to speak to us about marriage and love and other things. And so here, when asked when people, why people fall in love, May, whose age was nine, she said this, No one is sure why it happens, falling in love. She says, but, but I heard it has something to do with the way you smell, she says. That's the reason why deodorant and perfume are so important, that's what she said. 
and then carry a young boy by the name of age of seven. He says, speaking of his own personal love life, he says, love will find you, he said. Even if you're trying to hide from it, I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, but he says, but the girls keep finding me. So it's my, it's my life, it's sort of my life, yeah. Speaking of, and I didn't think about a girl at age seven. I don't know where these kids are coming from. Speaking on married couples and why they hold hands, Gavin, eight, age eight, gave this response. He says they hold hands because they want to make sure that their rings don't fall off because they pay good money for them, he said. <laughs> Just to lock them in there, you know. It really brings us to where we are today. And how do we keep our, how do we keep our rings, if you will, from falling off in marriage? And that's what's happening in our culture. You realize now we were, for a long time, I know as a pastor, when I preach on marriage, I always say we're almost 50% of marriages now end in divorce. It's now 52. We're not almost. We're over half of all marriages that are created in the United States legally end in divorce. That's where we are. Not a matter of a we could get there. That's where we are. Sad uh, statement, sad state of affairs, sad statement on the con condition of our culture. Suffice it to say, our understanding in the West, in the United States, of marriage and how it's to work and how those relationships work is not working. It's wrong. It's off. The statistics show it. We've got to get back to the creator of marriage. We've got to get back to his blueprints. Are this going to continue to slide downhill until we acknowledge that he's the king and he's the one that decides and he's the one that has to say, we're going to continue to see this fallout. Very interesting Harvard study. Harvard, by the way, was a Christian university. I don't know if you know that original, originally. It's not, not anywhere close to that now. A very biased study, nonetheless. They came up with some very interesting results. Harvard study revealed of all the couples they asked questions of and all the, the, the different surveys and, of marriages and other things, they found out that among those they asked, the couples that read their Bible together, prayed together, and went to church together, only one in 1,287 marriages dissolved. In other words, out of all those couples, the couples that read their Bibles, prayed together, went to church together, one-tenth of one percent ended in divorce. Only. Like I said, it's very interesting how even, even a secular bias survey demonstrates the same thing. The Scripture says, listen, you don't go by our rules, it's not going to work. God has rules regarding marriage. God has rules regarding our relationships with each other. You don't follow those rules, you're going to break it. So why are things breaking? We're not going by the one that told us what to do. So you're going to say, I'm going to thumb my nose at him, and I'm not going to do what he says, and I'm going to expect it to work out. Well, it's not. And that's what's happening. It's not. So we're going to go back to where we were last time. We got in the middle of all this and had to stop. We're going to do that again today and probably again next time just because this topic is so big. And the points are so important, we want to make sure that we're making these points and having a little bit of time to digest them before we just bull right through all these things. I want to make sure, before I go any further, give credit for the next couple of sermons, including this one, to, at least to a degree, to a guy by the name of Brian Bill, uh, looking at his sermons and his commentaries on this whole issue of marriage. I've incorporated some of his stuff, and I just want to make sure. Don't know who he is, and don't know if he knows, don't know the reason why he would want to know who I am. But nonetheless, just so you know. I don't come up with my own stuff, not all of it. Some of, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but whatever I do, just give credit to these guys, whoever they are. So last time we were together, we looked at two major overarching statements as we read here in the book of Genesis, the conclusions that we drew from God's creation of Adam and God's creation of Eve and God bringing them together. And the two major overarching statements, we're going to be adding to that, though, this morning, but the two major overarching statements, number one, God planned the human heart for love and companionship. It is the way we're built. 
No getting around it. It is the way the program was written called the human nature. We're built this way. We're not built to be separated from each other. We're built to be brought together. We're brought to come together. God planned the human heart for love and companionship. And originally, originally, the primary means of that was found, of that companionship and love was found in the institution called marriage. As we talked about last time, it's not that the Bible sits down anymore and says, because we have fallen from the original, haven't we? Adam and Eve had the original, and God built them originally for marriage. Anymore, we've fallen from the original design, so we can't sit down and say, as a church, everybody should be married. We shouldn't say that. God, there is a, single, there is a holy singleness that is out there that God has called some people to. There's a holy marriage that God has called people to. You need to decide in your relationship with God what God has called you to, and it's not for us to uh, browbeat someone and say everybody needs to be married or everybody needs to be single. We have these kind of things that have gone on in our culture, Christian culture, for, for centuries, and it's just neither one is correct. They need to both sit down and say, what, God, what, God has, what does God have for me? Again, bottom line, returning back to the original premise, back to the original context of what God has for us, will defeat this whole issue of a sliding towards divorce as we are in our society today. Someone has lined up for us uh, three stages of marriage, and I read this, and I wanted to give it to you and see what you thought about it. Three stages of marriage. The first stage is called the romance stage. Romance stage is that early on, focus on each other, uh, feelings are, are strong, uh, passions are high, uh, written of here in the Bible in Song of Solomon chapter 4, Verses 1 through 4, notice what it says. This is Solomon describing his new bride, and you can tell they're in the romance stage for sure. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are like the veil or, or doves, and your hair is like a flock of goats. I don't know how that's... It's an agrarian society, okay? She, she liked it, all right? That's all that matters. He said it, she liked it. They're, they're big romantics, Okay? Like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead, which is over there in the Middle East. Your, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your neck is like the Tower of David. I mean, I'm, I don't know. Like I said, I've never seen that tower. <laughs> Built with the courses of stone. He goes on to describe other physical you know, features. We're going to stop at the neckline, though he does not. Uh, but uh, talk about romantic love. We've got it right there. So there's the first stage. The first ro stage is the romance stage. The second stage, they, he called it, the writer called it the reality stage. So, so if romance stage is the ideal, then the reality stage is when it turns into an ordeal. The things that attracted you to each other now become the things that really tick you off sometimes about them you know they were so different that's what attracted me and now they're so different it really gets on my nerves and so uh anyway uh how do you know if you've fallen out of the romance stage you know if you're in the reality stage in your relationship it's when you roll your eyes at those who are still in the romance stage oh my goodness they make me sick you know <laughs> you're in the reality stage you're in the reality stage of your marriage. It reminds me of a, of a story of a, of a young minister who was performing his first wedding ceremony, and he was concerned because he didn't want to mess it up. I mean, he's going to do a lot of marriage ceremonies, but this is their only marriage, hopefully. And so he wanted to make sure he was going to do it right, so he calls this uh, respected minister that he knew who had been in the ministry for a long time and just to ask questions and make sure that he had everything straight. And, straight. and so he asked the old gentleman just some advice, and he says, listen, don't worry about it. You know, the bottom line is, is when it's all over, even if you mess, say some things incorrectly, they're still going to be married. The whole goal is that they, you get them married. He says, okay, okay. 
He says, and, and the other thing I would suggest to you, he says, when you get to a place that you don't remember what to say, just simply quote scripture. The so young minister was thinking, you know, that's good. I mean, how can you go wrong? I mean, scripture is perfect. And so, so going through the marriage ceremony, everything's going great. Uh, got to the place where he pronounces them husband and wife, and as soon as he does, he just draws a complete blank. Couldn't remember what to do. And he remembered the words of the older minister that says, when you can't remember what to do, simply quote scripture. So he quoted, this is a true story, Luke 22, verse 34, which says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <laughs> Maybe apropos. So the first stage is the romance stage. Second stage is the reality stage. The third stage is, according to this article, the rethinking stage. The rethinking stage. So if romance is the ideal and reality is the ordeal, then the rethinking stage is when you're looking for a new deal. And, it, and it, this article ended very sadly because it basically only gave two options for people who find themselves in the, in the uh, rethinking stage. Number one option was to settle for the blah marriage. Uh, Minnie Pearl, do you know Minnie Pearl? Anybody remember Minnie Pearl? Hee-haw. Great, great wise theologian and philosopher, Minnie Pearl. She said these words. She said, getting married is a lot like getting into a tub of hot water. Once you get into it and get used to it, it ain't that hot, she said. The blah marriage. The article said you can only settle either for a blah marriage or you need to decide to bail on your marriage. That's what it said. That's what they're doing. So that's the advice of this famous, you know, advice about marriage. I don't know. I would suggest to you a fourth uh, option. Instead of there is the romance stage and then there, there is the reality stage and there's the rethinking stage, how about the rebuilding stage? How about rebuilding your marriage instead of the way you think? on the way God thinks. And if, if we're going to rebuild, we're going to have to go back to the original architect, right? The way he designed it, the way he does things. And if you expect your marriage to work and to be built correctly, you're going to have to go to him. We keep coming up with the ideas of what's going to run around between our ears and what we see in our culture, and we keep coming to the same conclusions. It doesn't work. It's not going to work. The original designer, the, the, the architect, he's the one. He knows, and so we're going to go back to him, and we started that last time here in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 2. We're going to be in the last two verses here in just a bit. Uh, this is uh, covenantal marriage, covenantal statements being made here, and I want us to hear what it says, and then we're going to draw some points, or as we have already started doing. For this cause, for the cause of what? For the fact that God created a man and created a woman and brought them together in a thing called marriage. For the cause of marriage, it says, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Up until that point, the most important relationships in his life. He leaves those relationships, says, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then as a commentary, it says, the man and his wife after the marriage ceremony were both naked, and they were not ashamed, it says. So marriage is accomplished, drawing from this text, by four things according to the scriptures. Number one, leaving. Number two, receiving. We're going to talk about that this morning. Number three, cleaving. And number four, weaving. It just fits. I'm sorry for the alliterations, guys. You know, that's not normally me, but like I said, I'm getting my points from somebody else. But uh, nonetheless, it does fit here for sure. So leaving, receiving, cleaving, and weaving, these are the rules. Don't break them. Don't break them. These are not suggestions. 
These are the way it works, and if you do it any other way, it's probably not going to work. The reason why our culture is falling apart on every level, especially marriage, is because we're not following the rules. Shouldn't shock us when things don't work out, when we come up with these ideas from ourselves. We have to come up with them from the scriptures and trust God, who is the architect of marriage, and do things his way. So again, this is covenantal language, this statement, this man shall leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh, repeated five different times otherwise in the scriptures. Always the same way. Always this very regimented, very clear this is the way it is. It's boxed in. Keep it this way. Don't change it. Don't mistake it. The last time we talked about uh, the first step, uh, the first rule in marriage is this whole leaving thing. What does it mean to leave? The Hebrew word here is extremely strong. It literally means to cut off. A man shall cut off, literal interpretation, his father and mother in order to cleave to his wife. Don't break this rule. Cut off doesn't mean that you disown them, you never go home for Christmas or Thanksgiving, and certainly that you don't accept presents in the mail for, for the grandkids. It's not what it's saying. It just simply says your, your, your allegiance, your, your loyalty, your priority has to shift from mom and dad up until that point, supposedly at least, the closest relationship that you have on planet Earth, mom and dad, to a child. You have to cut off that relationship and now the priority of it and turn that priority now to your wife or to your husband. Hear me carefully. Don't break that rule or you will break a marriage. Now, some of us here are young and in the marriage stage, possibly uh, young married. Some of us have been married for a long time, like myself. Others of us have, uh, are at the place where my wife and I are at this place, even though our kids aren't, don't have any, per se, serious relationships, but we're at the place where our kids are getting married. Some of you are at that place today. Hear, hear me carefully, it works both ways. It's not just the kid needs to change his priorities from mom and dad. Mom and dad also need to let the kid go. Quit meddling with them. Again, don't break these rules, mom and dad, or you will break a relationship. Don't do it. That kid needs to go, he needs to go, and he needs to be with his wife. And you need to, hear me carefully, butt out. Butt out. Don't, unless they call, don't give your advice. Now we saw last time, if they call to come home, say, you already are home. This is my wife and I's house. You no longer live here. You're with your husband now. You're with your wife now. Make it work. This is not your home anymore. Biblically, it's not. And if it is, or if you still continue to think that way, like I said, you're going to break a marriage. Your spouse, when you marry, becomes your priority even over your parents. And as I said, your parents is the closest relationship you have to anybody on earth outside of marriage. That means all other relationships. You leave them. You're ceasing to be who you were. You were a single person in relationship to your parents. Now you are married. You're no longer single. You cannot relate to anybody else the way you used to. That has ended. It is over. I'm not going to think like a single person. I'm not going to act like a single person. I'm not going to spend money. I'm not going to make plans like a single person because if I do... I may get to be single again, won't I? That's what we're doing. Got to quit. Your spouse, the loyalty that you have is shifted now from your parents or any other relationship. Your spouse should never have to compete for you with anyone. Not your coworkers, not your friends, not your mom and dad, not your brothers and sisters. They need to become it, and you need to become it. I mean, she needs to become or he needs to become it, and, 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 the, and vice versa is true. It needs to be the two of you. It's just us. 
We're together. And we associate to the world, not as a you or as a me. We associate to the world as an us now. We've never done this before. So it's a complete change. Mom and dad, you got to get that through your head. Kids, you got to get that through your head as you enter into marriage. And if you don't, like I said, don't break these rules or they will break a marriage. So the second thing we're going to talk about is the second rule of marriage that we see here in the scriptures. First of all, leaving. And the second one, how important this is and how weird it is, again, compared to our culture. And we looked last time at comparisons of how we think marriage ought to go and how relationships ought to go and the whole dating scene and all that. And the Bible has some very strong words to say against the way we commonly think. And it's going to say it again here. The second word after leaving is receiving. Receiving. So God creates Adam, gives him a lesson in obedience, uh, teaches him about his needs, right? So God immediately sees Adam by himself and says, this isn't good. He, six times he says the whole creation is good. Sees Adam by himself and he says, oh, this isn't good. We expect that immediately God would just snap his fingers and create Eve. Oh, this isn't good. I'll fix it. Boom, here's Eve. That's not what he did. He took Adam through his first premarital counseling, which was effectively zoology 101. He names all the animals, right? Why does he do that? Because God can see the need. He wants Adam also to see, oh, I don't, have a, I don't have someone like me. I don't have a partner. I don't have someone equal to me. So God doesn't immediately create Eve so that Adam can say, hey, I need that. I never knew that before, but I, but I need it. And so God creates an understanding of, of, of his own need, and then he puts Adam to sleep, of course, and he creates, he creates Eve. Now, he puts Adam to sleep because, why? Because that's the only way God can do it, right? He can't override your f physical feelings in order to take a rib out. Or, or is there another reason for him to put Adam to sleep? Can God not give you a pain shot? Can God not snap his fingers and just like a levitate a rib out of the side of his body, you know, and I don't know, make Eve? Why does he go through this process? God has a very specific reason for everything that he does. He puts Adam to sleep so that Adam gives no commentary. No, no, you know, make her, I don't know, a little bit different shaped. Make her skin a little darker or a little lighter or hair a little blonder or a little more brunette or he gives no input whatsoever, no opportunity. Why? Because, again, statements made by Scripture. You do not decide. You should not be the decider on the person that you marry. Or, isn't it true that God provides our needs? Is that not true? So when we think of that, what do we think of? My needs are what? Money, place to live, clothes to wear, right? So, but I guess a spouse is outside of that? Isn't it true that... Uh, that as, as important as money is and clothes to wear and a place to live, that a spouse is far more important. So if God's in charge, we give God the charge for these small things, but when it comes to the bigger things, that's our responsibility? Isn't that asinine? I do believe it is. I think we should start off by saying the biggest things are certainly in God's, and, and of course the smaller things too. I'm trusting him for the small things. I'm certainly trusting him for the bigger things. God's in charge of who your spouse is. And let me just say this clearly. If he's not, well then, then we kind of know why things are working the way they are. If you're the one making the decision, if the shepherd's not getting a say and the sheep are getting to decide where they go, well then what happens? 
The sheep get themselves in, in hot water, and that's where we are today, marriage-wise. Our world is in hot water in the area of marriage because we're not listening to the shepherd. He's, getting, I, I, he's leading us, and we're saying, no, I've got to make my own decisions. I, I know what's best for me. It's your first and last time through life. You don't know. You're not going to know. You need to know the shepherd, and then when he brings the right sheep for you, take it. That's what Adam does. Watch. He receives her. Notice. So Adam doesn't check her out. He's not like, give me a couple of days to think about this. You know, I don't really know. I've never seen one of these before. No, he doesn't do that. He immediately accepts her. Notice there in verse 23. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's the first time he sees her. This is it, he says. This is the one. There's not another one. This is the one. And God immediately performs the marriage ceremony. The same day he creates Eve, the same day that they meet, they get married. Now, that's huge. They don't get to date. They don't get to meet. The, there wasn't any in-laws, but they don't get a chance. She doesn't get to check out how he acts on social media. They didn't get to run any kind of investigation or background check or any of those kind of things. He just simply says, okay, let's get married. So the day that they meet is the day they get married. Let me put this in, in another perspective for you. Let's say I'm single. I'm not. Let's say that I am, and you and I are down here on South Padre Island, and we're hanging out, and we're just checking out the beach scene, and we're Louis' backyard, other places, and I come to you. We've been separated for half a day. I come back to you. Listen, I met this girl. And she's awesome. And we've got ourselves a pastor. And we're getting married tonight out here on the beach. What would you say about that? You're my friend. Right? We're traveling together. And I don't drink. I don't touch it. I'm, I'm stone cold sober. What would you say? So, so if she was on the other foot... I would knock you in the head, put you in the trunk. We'd go back to where we're from. Because that's crazy, right? I mean, you just don't do that. And I don't think in, in this case, Adam and Eve marry the same day they meet. I don't, I don't think the, we can extrapolate to say you have to meet and marry somebody on the same day in order to be biblical. That's, that's not the point that's being made here. It's not, let's, not, let's not bend this and force this into something that it's not saying. But what it is saying is something very critical, very important for us here. Adam and Eve did not know the hand that they were holding that day. They did not. But hear me carefully. They did know the hand that was bringing them together. That would be God. And based upon their knowledge of him, so I don't know you, and you don't know me, but I do know God who is bringing you to me, and you say the same thing, I don't know you, and you don't know me, but I do know that God is bringing me to you. Based upon that and that alone, they make a lifelong commitment to each other. I just have to say, wow. What a commentary on today's dating culture. I gotta find the right person. I gotta make sure she's right for me. Really? You really have a, lot, a high opinion about what's running around between your ears. About your experiences, about what your real needs are. You really are, that's, you know, there's nothing dumber than a sheep, right? The only thing, there is one thing dumber, right? A sheep that thinks he's not dumb. You really think that you're that smart? You think you really got that much going on? 
You're going to just divorce yourself from the whole issue of God and His design? That's what's happening to us. We're divorcing ourselves from the whole design that God has for us and, and His leadership in our lives. And so it's natural that divorce happens in other relationships. It makes total sense. Because I didn't start off correctly, so it's not going to end correctly. It makes total sense. So, so again, how is it possible to two who have never met to get married on the same day? Here's how it's possible. They knew God, and they knew God was bringing them together, and they didn't know anything else. I said, I'm not advocating, and I don't think the Bible is advocating just meet somebody and get married the same day. But I'm saying this whole checking each other out is not biblical. It doesn't fit. The line that the Bible lays out is simply you need to know who God is, you need to know Him very well, and then when it's His time, He will bring the right person to you. That is the line of Scriptures. That is the line. And not, again, not that God's calling every last person to be married or every last person to be single. You've got to decide that before God. But again, it, it's... It's predicated on a relationship you have with God. I mean, all this is null and void. You've got no relationship with Him. You're not walking day to day with Him. I want the right person that God has for me, but I don't want to spend the time to have the right relationship with the one who brings that right person to me. You're headed for a train wreck. And that's where we find a lot of marriages. Train wrecks. And, and they're among Christians. So the, the statistics among the, the world today and the world we live in is almost identical to the ones inside the church. Because the church, even though in a saving relationship with the Father, they got the life preserver on and the person of Jesus, they really don't know him any better than that. They're still out there, there are sheep out there wandering, doing their own thing. Even though God's their Savior, they trusted him, they call him a shepherd, and he actually is, they're still not really listening to him, you see. So they wind up in bad places, and they start scratching their head, because, like I said, we're all dumb sheep. Such an important principle. It speaks so much volumes to to our understanding and our, the backwardness of, of how we think things really work. So, so hear me carefully. It's a fallacy to think it is our job to find our mate, number one. Number two, it is a mistake to accept them based on anything less than God brought them to me. It's a mistake to accept them on anything less than God brought them to me because anything less than that is just wishy-washy. So I accept her based upon how she looks. Well, guess what? She ain't going to look that good anymore. Next year, but 50 years. I mean, if that's your basis, then yeah, that's going to wash out on you. Or I, I love him because of his capabilities. Well, guess what? He's going to lose those. Because of his ability or his character or his money or the warm fuzzies that I feel when we're with each other. Well, guess what? That's going to change. Maybe your first fight, and I just say first because it's not, yeah, it won't be your last. Marriage, listen, becomes wishy-washy because we commit to each other on a wishy-washy basis. We, we try, you know, this whole mentality of we try each other out, and this uh, wrong on so many levels, this whole living together culture as opposed to getting married because we're trying each other out. Well, let me just say this to you. You're going to be trying each other out for the rest of your lives. Because it, it's going to change. You're not going to be the same person next year as you were this year. You're not going to be the same person after you have kids as prior to when you had kids. And you're not going to be the same person when he loses his job as opposed to when he had his job. You're not going to be the same person when you had money come in and you didn't have money come in. Life's going to change you. It's going to change. You can't do anything about it. And so if it's based upon some consistency of the other person, guess what? I can already tell you where you're headed. 
You're going to be divorced, at, at, at least, if not legally, psychologically, emotionally, and every other way. You settle for the blahs. Because you, you've settled already, you've started out on the wrong foot because your premise is based upon something that's wishy-washy. When we, when we make our marriage based upon the changeableness of human nature, guess what happens? Our marriage changes. It turns into something, I can't believe we got here. How did we ever get here? Because life changes. People change. But when we base our marriage, hear me, on the changelessness of the God who created us, then and only then does it work. Then and only then. I hope you hear me, married couples and unmarried young people. Hear me. Hear what the scriptures say. We have to base it on, again, bottom line has to be, because God brought her to me. Because God brought him to me. And so my commitment is not, at least initially, to her. It's to him. And if I start off the backwards way, my commitment is to her, and we can find a place for him in our lives. Like I said, don't break these rules, or you may break a marriage. Wedding industry is a huge business. I'm sure you know that. It's massive. We, we, uh, 2017, the average wedding in the United States typically set a person back, or their family back, $27,000. Wow. You're just as married either way. 2017, 2018, it almost doubled in price. The average wedding cost $44,000. You're just as married. Again, according, this is according to Brides Magazine, American wedding study that was put out there. It's a huge study, by the way. My wife is, is a wedding planner. I think a lot of you know that. If you're looking to get married, come talk to her. <laughs> or looking for a wedding. We can't do anything about your marriage. We can help you with your wedding, though. My wife is a wedding planning business. Uh, she's done upwards of 300 weddings a year here on South Padre Island, here on the beach. She's a pro. Uh, I've observed, I've done some of these weddings for some... I'm her favorite minister, right, honey? So, so I do some of these weddings, and some of them I don't do, but I've observed the weddings, you know, the hundreds that she's done, and I've, I've observed this. this is, you're going to find this very interesting. That almost 100% of weddings end in marriage. Wow. doesn't matter who the officiant is, whether I'm done it, or it's done in Spanish, or it's done in English, or we have them, they come out, fly down on a, I don't we've, have we had them do parachutes? We have. We've had them do kiteboarding. I know we've had them kiteboard off into the sunset after we pronounced them husband and wife. We've had them ride off in horses. We had one couple that got married. They want to get married on horses. They had never either one of them been on horses ever before in their life. I'm thinking, oh man, what a testimony though about marriage. You're getting into something you've never been in before. And the horse ride is going to be the least of it for you. Man, are you in trouble. So, um, so, so almost 100% of weddings end in marriage, which is the whole point, right? The whole point of the wedding is that you get married, isn't it? But the problem is, is that's not the whole point. Isn't the point actually marriage? You know, it's, it's interesting, people come to me and they have people, not everybody that we married, but some of the people ask me, we want a biblical wedding. And you know what my answer is to them? Effectively, I have no idea what that is. The only biblical wedding I have is right here in Genesis, so that means the two of you need to be married naked in a garden. Is that what you want to do? Because <laughs> there is not another wedding in the Bible, guys. There's a lot of marriage in the Bible, but there's no weddings in the Bible. It doesn't have anything. It doesn't say anything about what you're supposed to wear, whether she has flowers, whether there's an archway, whether you have a minister, whether it's a JP. It doesn't say what it has to be in the morning. It doesn't have to be in the evening. It doesn't say you have to have a reception. It doesn't say 
anything in the Bible about weddings. But boy, does it have a lot to say about marriages. Even tells you how to dress. Look at this, Colossians 3. And we apply this in a broad sense, the relationships we have in church, and, and it does apply. But I want to supply it specifically. I want you to supply it specifically to your marriage, if you're married. Or specifically to the marriage that maybe God is leading you to, or, or whatever. Take a look at this. So as those who have been chosen by God, right? I hope that's who you are. I hope you've, hope you've accepted Christ as personal Savior. You actually not just know that He can save you like a life preserver in the front of your boat. You actually have put it on because when the boat's sinking, and it is, it's got to be there. It's not enough to know that the life preserver can rescue. You've got to trust the life preserver, and that's who Jesus is. So if you have a relationship like that, then you've been chosen by God, the Scripture says. Holy and beloved. What an awesome position. Tells you how to dress. Put on, right? You've got to put it on because there it is. It's like the life preserver. It's over there. I've got to take it and put it on. I've got to apply it to my life. Now I have Christ, but now I've got to take the attributes of Christ every day and apply it to my life. It's so important for every relationship, most importantly marriage. Put on, it says, a heart of compassion. What kind of difference with compassion making your relationship? Kindness. Can you describe your relationship as a husband or as a wife? Kindness? Humility. Wow. It's one of the things I say to my couple, listen, if you're not ready for humility, you're not ready for marriage. Somebody knows everything about you and still loves you anyway, you hope? That's humility. <laughs> Gentleness, right? Takes that. Patience. Bearing with one another. Wow, why? Because you're a sinner too. So she's messed up. Well, guess what? It's going to be your turn next. Forgiving each other, right? Whoever has a complaint against one another, one of the things I make my couple say when they get married is not their vows, but I make them look into each other's eyes in the marriage ceremony and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I make them say it. And this is what I tell them. Get used to saying it. Because that's what marriage is going to be, unless, of course, you're both perfect, which, of course, you're not. Get used to saying you're sorry, and will you forgive me? Sometimes we forget to say that. Any complaint, it says, whatsoever you have against one another, just as God forgave you, right? As the Lord forgave you. Anybody that's been married successfully for a long time knows how important that is. So also should you... Beyond all these things, again, clothing. Put on love. Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The Bible doesn't have hardly anything to say about weddings, but boy, does it have a lot to say about marriage. I want to ask you, please, to bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we think about the things that God has said to us today. And you may, maybe, you know, this doesn't really apply to me. I'm not really married. I'm not looking to be married. I'm not on the dating scene. I'm not this and that. I understand that. And that's okay. But it does point out something very particular and important to all of us, and simply this. God is the designer of our lives. God is the director of our lives. He doesn't just wind us up like a bunch of clocks and turn us loose. No, He oversees. He intervenes. He wants to, and we need Him to be involved in every aspect. And marriage is just a, a highlight of that. We need him involved in every detail of our lives. We want him involved in the big things like marriage and relationships. Well, guess what, guys? He's got to be involved in the small things. I'll be no better than who I am when I'm completely by myself. So if I want him to be in the big things when I'm out in front, well, he's got to be involved in the small things when I'm all by myself. But it's just me and him, and it's only him that sees. Heavenly Father, we want you to be involved in the small things in our lives and the details.
God, we, we acknowledge that you're the provider of our needs, but then we try to take over when the big things come up, God, and that's a huge mistake. So true, illustrated in marriage and the condition that marriage is in our world today, in our churches today, in our mentalities, God, we need all these things to be changed. So God, we're asking for your intervention. First of all, just your conviction of your Holy Spirit to convict us about uh, the truthfulness of your word, the truthfulness that you're the designer and you're, it only works your way. And then secondly, in, on top of that conviction, God, the determination to be obedient, trusting you by honoring you, doing what you say. Thank you so much, God. We call on you through your Holy Spirit to do that kind of work in our lives today, right now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.